From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the, at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Mississippi is a proud home of some impressive lakes, rivers, creeks, and ponds. More than 280 species swim in these waters. To uh, help us learn more about these species is biologist Robbie Elwanger from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Also, we're in severe weather preparedness week, so we'll talk about keeping your pets safe while severe weather strikes. And as always, we want to hear about any recent brushes with wildlife that you've had. Join the conversation this morning. Give us a phone call. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Reminder that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. And a quick note, uh, there is uh, some severe weather that uh, could possibly threaten the state today. Reminder that uh, we keep you up to date throughout the day uh, on MPB if that severe weather does make its way through Mississippi. So good morning, Libby. Uh, I noticed that you brought in, um, I guess, show and tell. <laughs> it's a very small show and tell, but what did you bring in uh, oh, with you I this morning? I brought in an Asian ladybug or a harlequin ladybug. They're um, an invasive, introduced, and I have dozens, if not hundreds, in my house and on my house right now, as I think a lot of people have. And uh, I've, I've been getting questions about them at home, so I thought maybe we'd talk about them just a little bit this morning. Uh, They aren't invasive, and um, I consider them probably still a little more good than bad, though. It's not like an invasive that's terrible. The worst part is that they are pretty much um, taking over the territory and pretty much wiping out our native ladybugs, which is a real shame. Uh, in fact, I'd kind of urge our listeners to look and see if you can find a native ladybug. They won't come in the house. That's another, that's a, a, a big negative, I guess, about these Asian ones is they seek shelter in the winter, in the cold weather, inside of structures, inside of homes or your car or any place that feels warm to them, and they can certainly be a nuisance. Uh, they, um, if there are enough of them in there, they emit their um they can emit a fluid that's kind of a bright yellow and it can stain things and they can smell bad they do eat aphids that's why they were brought by the u.s department of agriculture in fact i think they three different introductions starting back in the 1917 so they were just really sure that they wanted us to have these (laughs) insects but i'm not so sure that that they're glad now although they like i say they eat aphids both as a larva and as an adult so that part's good ladybugs have a a kind of a a a bad taste it's a a slight amount of poison it's not going to poison a bird but they're distasteful so birds don't eat them our native ladybugs have that as well the asian ones have that more so so that has made them a little more successful in the environment, I think, is part of the reason. And there's also some talk that they carry a, a kind of a disease that affects our native ladybugs. It's a parasite, actually, in their body that um, 
can kill our native ladybugs, so that's another reason. But if you look outside, you may find ladybugs, native ladybugs, in the coming weeks, probably not right now while it's cold. They hide in the winter and kind of go dormant, but they do it in nature. They do it outside in a rotten log or something, not in our homes. They're a brighter red and have fewer spots. Most of our native ones here in Mississippi have seven spots, and their pronatum, their kind of face region, is black with a few white markings on it, and these Asian ones tend to be more orangey, and they can even be yellow. They vary a lot, although some of them can be pretty bright, close to red, a bright orange, but their pronatum or face is predominantly white with um, little bitty black marks on it, kind of making an M or a W. If you're looking at them face on, it looks like an M a little bit, and um, they have more spots. This is a nine-spotted one. And they can have many more. There, there are hundreds of species of ladybugs around the world, and all of them eat aphids, and so all of them are considered good for the environment and good for our home gardens and that kind of thing. So it's not terribly bad. And uh, entomologists all over the country, I was reading something that Texas A&M said, they, they do not advise that you try to poison them. They said they'll... They'll die last, if if at all, from anything you use for poison. But simply vacuum them up if they're in your house. Vacuum them up and dump them outside. You know, you can do whatever you want with them once you get them in captivity in your clutches. But um, I kind of do away with them, to tell you the truth. When I, once I vacuum them in the house, I think I have plenty to eat the aphids. And if I have any native ones, I'll be looking for my native ones again this year. I did not find any natives last year, though, so I don't know if I have any more on my property at all. But anyway, vacuum them up and get them out of your house. And then the other thing to look for right now are the goldfinches, and they're on our feeders everywhere, and both the male and female are starting to get a brighter yellow and getting towards their breeding colors. And if you're lucky in Mississippi, you'll have some breeding. I don't haven't had a breeding pair at my place yet. They breed tend to breed kind of the northern half of our state and then the northern part of the country. So that's my two tips this morning. Uh, so the ladybugs are are beetles? They they are beetles. Yes, they are not a bug. In fact, a lot of people call them ladybug beetles. Or um, some people call them ladybird beetles. Hmm. And I think maybe other parts of the country, that's what they call them, a ladybird beetle. Uh, here's an email that we got that <clears throat> you might be able to help us with. Uh, Libby, it says, about 10 a.m. this morning, I looked out my kitchen window and saw mud darber nests on the bricks between the main house and the utility room of the carport. Then I noticed that one of them was not a mud dauber, but a small brown bat. It appears to be about three inches long. We don't want to harm this new visitor, uh, but don't want it to take up residence. Is there any concern for rabies in bats in Mississippi? There's a very slight chance of rabies, but since rabies is such a, a bad disease, you certainly don't want to take a chance by touching it or feeling it. And you would have to do you would have to have contact with it to catch the rabies. But um, it's probably, if it was on the bricks snoozing in the day, you probably is not going to take up residence. They, if they'll, oftentimes they'll have, um, you know, they'll be faithful to a certain roost somewhere, but somewhere like that where they're just hanging on the bricks, my guess is he just kind of, 
or she was out hunting and got daylight and they took a nap there on those bricks and um a, th- a three inch long bat is that that's got to be i would guess the smallest kind of bat, <laughs> bat there is it's pretty big for a bat yeah oh, it actually, is okay yeah, All right. yeah some of them are pretty yeah because three inches is about like but i guess about that much yeah so that's a pretty good is that a big brown bat uh, it could be something like that or a southeastern myotis. Yeah. And this is a good introduction. Caitlin's coming in a few weeks, I think maybe two weeks, three weeks, to talk about bats with us. So we'll get more information then. All right. Um, why don't we go ahead and let's uh, take our first break of this hour. When we get back, we'll begin a discussion with our guest, Robbie Elwanger, from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science about the fish and mussels that call Mississippi's fresh waters home. You can call in with questions and comments this morning. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more, so stay tuned. Hey, this is Malcolm White with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Every week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcast app. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield. If you want to join our conversation this morning with a question or comment, you can call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Uh, we'll begin discussion with our guest in just a minute, but we do have a caller to get to. So let's say good morning to Sydney, who's called in from Jasper County this morning. Go ahead, Sydney. You're on the air with us. Okay, how y'all doing? What do you have for uh, us? How y'all doing? We're doing good. Go uh, ahead. Uh, I want to ask Libby this. Uh, I've been at my place 31 years, and I feed a lot of birds. Uh, I've seen, bird, seen a bird that I ain't seen before in my life. It's a small type of uh, uh, dude. I got three different sizes of dude. It's a small size. He's about the size of a red bird. Then I got the regular dude. Then I got them great big dudes. Where that little dude come from? Oh, okay. Now, you've probably got the morning dove. You hear that. Oh, I don't want to make that sound in the Woo-hoo. That, that kind of a mournful cooing. You probably know that one, right? Yeah, Do I know ha- that one. Okay. They're collared doves. Do you have a... Does he have uh, markings around his neck? Uh, round is uh, it's it, it the same color, you know that uh, kind of gray, that gray color, the the uh, uh, medium size dove is. Yeah, yeah. Different sizes. Uh-huh. That's what got me. I was out there in my yard, and I seen them dove come up, and then it's not one, it's two. They hang together, and then I got the medium size, which is our native dove. Then you got them great big. Yes. But, uh, and the, the, what makes you distinct, their foot is the same color. You know, they got that kind of pink foot, a uh, pink leg. 
they got that pink leg, they're like the uh, million size. So I got three different sizes of dove, and I couldn't wait for the day. I wasn't going to take you. I want to call and talk to you about that. What they been? Okay. All right. Now, so what you're thinking about is what is the smallest dove? I might have to do some reading and answer. Are you going to be listening for the rest of the day? Yes, ma'am. I'm, I'm going to do it now. I'm going to do it again. Say Okay, listen, keep listening, and I'm, I'll read a little bit, because there are several doves that can come through, and, yeah, I'll I'll let you know in a few minutes, maybe, okay? Okay, now, remember, these are the same size of redbird. You know how big a redbird is? Yeah, yeah. Well, they're the same size, but they're made in the shape of the regular dove. Yeah, and and do, all right, do you see anything around their necks? Got, got the, the color of the regular dove, but uh, uh, they look just like the regular dove, and and uh, got that pink leg. Got the pinkish <laughs> legs, more kind of an orangey pink looking leg, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, on the pink leg. Yeah. Okay, Sydney. Hang on. If and if we may have a listener that identifies it, but I'll do a little reading right here for you. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. All right, uh, Sydney, thanks for your call this morning. Libby will do some research. Hopefully we'll get some information for you before the hour runs out. <clears throat> this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, and I guess today is Robbie Elwanger. Robbie, thanks uh, for joining us this morning. Tell us a little bit about your background. Oh, yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so I grew up in rural Georgia um, on a farm um, and enjoyed kind of exploring the wilds of the areas around us um, and ended up going to Berry College in Rome, Georgia. And if you don't know much about Berry, um, the campus is 26,000 acres. Wow. So had plenty of time to explore for four <laughs> years and walk all around. Um, I did research for the Atlanta Coyote Project, um, which is based at Berry College, um, and spent a lot of time um, kind of walking the campus and getting time to explore and really realized that I kind of wanted a, a career where I got to work outside and find cool new things and learn new things. Um, so after graduation, I found a job as a technician um, at the Auburn Fish Biodiversity Lab under Dr. Carol Johnston um, and worked there as a fish technician and got to go all over Alabama and survey all the streams of Alabama um, for native fish, started learning my native fish, um, really helped me build my uh, strengths in stream sampling, fish identification, um, and specimen curation. Um, and after I finished that summer job, um, Carol Johnston actually offered me a master's position. Um, so I completed my master's there in 2019 um, and then found a job at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science under the former ichthyologist Matt Wagner. Um, and he recently moved to the as a federal biologist now, and now I'm the current ichthyologist at the museum. Uh, so my notes say that your parents operated a petting zoo. Is that right? They did. That's, yep. for, that sounds for about interesting. a decade. What yes. was that like? It was interesting. We we didn't have anything crazy or any exotics. It was mainly just your normal domestic sheep, rabbits, ducks, goats, pigs. Um, but it was fun. It was a lot of fun. They did a lot of traveling, kind of traveling exhibits all over Georgia. And we had an in-house set up where people could come, could come and have birthday parties. And it kind of started my interest in working with animals. I was at uh, Grant Park in St. Louis a couple years ago, and they have a, sort of a little petting zoo in there. And the, my favorite part was the goats, because they give you those little bottles of milk. 
And boy, when you got in there, those goats knew what you had, and it was they would just mob you and like tug on the, the my shorts and that sort of thing. So that was a lot of fun. So that's a it's an interesting part of your background. So you mentioned uh, ichthyologist. Hopefully, I won't have to say that too many times. <laughs> yes. So I um, and technically the ichthyologist and curator of fishes at the museum. I have a couple more duties. Um, I am also in charge of the mussel collection, um, the fish collection at the museum, which the ichthyologist is the fish, a fish biologist. Um, mm-hmm. So our ichthyological collection has 95,000 lots, um, which is a lot is a, a single collection of specimens, um, and that equals a couple million um, individual fish in our collection. Um, and then the mussel collection, which I am also over, has 15,000 lots. Um, I'm also in charge of both databases that are associated with those collections. Um, I'm in charge of coordinating and leading status surveys for both fish and mussels um, of conservation concern within the state. And I'm also the lead um, for Mississippi Department of Wildlife um, for non-game fish and mussels. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, visiting today with uh, Robbie Elwanger uh, from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. If you have a fish-related question, uh, Robbie might be able to help you with, or if you want to tell us about a recent brush with nature or uh, anything else that you'd like to add to the conversation this morning, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can always email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. One of my favorite parts about the Museum of Natural Science are the uh, the the, uh, the tanks, the aquarium. So if you would, uh, tell us a little bit about um, the um, the tanks and, and, and how they're set up. I always thought it was really interesting how each one is sort of a different habitat. So if you would, tell us again about how that's organized. So yes, um, our aquariums at the museum are... Um, set up to um, kind of mirror or be a, a, a good example of what you'll find in different habitat types. Um, we have a, a Pearl River tank, which kind of showcases all of the big species that you might find in the Pearl River. Um, we have a Blackwater tank, which shows all of the small native species that you'll find in Blackwater um, rivers. And it, it just kind of showcases, you know, the diversity of what we have in Mississippi and um, some species that people might not know that we have. Um, we have over 240 species of fish in Mississippi. Um, of course, we don't have all of those at the museum, but it's, it's a good example of kind of the, the diversity of species that we have within the state and what you can find in your own backyard. Did you have to be careful about what gets in the tank with what else? I mean, is the, the, are there natural enemies on, on any of them? But I'll, although I guess that would sort of mirror real life as well. Yes, so our Aquarius do um, kind of hold, we'll bring in um, fish from the field um, for the Aquarius, and they'll usually have them in holding tanks for several weeks to months um, just to monitor them and making sure they're not bringing in any outside diseases into the tanks or any outside parasites. Um, and then they'll they'll put them in the tanks after that. Um, so why are scientific collections important to uh, the conservation of uh, native fish in Mississippi? Yes. So um, at the museum, we have many scientific collections, including the fish and mussel collections, um, which both house thousands of specimens from thousands of locations. Um, we have specimens dating back to the late 1800s, um, and these really provide valuable insight um, into the changes that our native aquatic ecosystems have experienced over time. Um, these collections allow researchers, conservationists, and wildlife agencies to access historic information on our native fish and mussel species, um, which really helps in planning future efforts for protecting and recovering many of our threatened and endangered species. 
Um, the field research that we conduct um, at the museum also helps as we gather more specimens for that collection um, and then maintaining these collections and, and adding new specimens and new data um, really provides future scientists with the ability to study and observe the aquatic communities as they are currently, um, which will hopefully allow for the success of conservation efforts for generations to come. Um, do you have a favorite to uh, observe or work with? Um, I'm kind of really enjoying mussels right now, uh, just mussels in general. Uh, I've worked with fish for the last 10 years or so, um, and mussels are kind of a new hobby. Uh, taking over the mussel collection is kind of daunting, but it's, it's fun, and mussel surveys have gotten, gotten really fun. Uh, we'll dig into mussels in a little bit more depth uh, later in the show, but uh, for those of us that might be unaware, w w um, what does a mussel look like? And give us the, the mussel 101, I guess. So so when someone's referring to a mussel, um, you'll hear people talk about mollusks. Um, mollusk is more of a broad term and can include you know snails and clams. And um, mussel usually narrows it down to freshwater mussels in Mississippi. Our freshwater mussels are all found within the family Unionidae. They're all Unionids. Um, they are bivalves, meaning they have two similar valves um, that close and kind of surround the individual. It's a hard shell, almost looks like a rock on many species. Um, but uh, yeah, our, our, our native mussels, we have 84 species, or, sorry, yeah, 84 species of native mussel. Um, 27 of those are state or federally listed, and 17 of those are federally threatened or endangered. Um, so we do have a nice diversity of mussels in the state. We've got a caller on the line, so let's uh, say good morning to Colt, who's called in from Poplarville. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Uh, yes, sir. I just wanted to hear him talk a little bit about a uh, fish called a moon eye that I've uh, caught only a few times and uh, over on Okatoma Creek. Yes, yeah, so um, moon eye um, are closely related to golden eye, and I cannot remember which one is which. One of them, um, the dorsal fin is over the anal fin, and the other one, the anal fin, is behind the dorsal fin. Um, but both of them uh, you can identify by a, a keel that goes down the front, of, almost like a, a big sternum sticking out of the fish. Um, they mainly feed on, I think, plankton um, but they will go you will catch them on small rooster tails and worms and stuff and they can get fairly big then they're usually a larger river species so you can pull them out of usually the mississippi river um the pearl river stuff like that all right colt thanks for thanks. your call uh, libby you've done some research looks like did you have some information about the the doves for us oh all right for sydney's birds okay the most common we're going to see are those morning doves that he, he knows, and they're about 12 inches. The Eurasian collar doves are also all over the state all year long. They're a little larger, and it sounds like maybe he had that one too, didn't he? I think he said he had a large one and then a medium size. And then we also have common ground dove. And they are smaller. They're a little smaller even than a cardinal, but it would be kind of between the cardinal and the – I mean a, a – the, the cardinal would be between the look of the Eurasian collar dove and the morning dove and the common ground dove. So I'm thinking that's what he has. He might look at it again and look at a, a common ground dove if he's got a way to look in a bird book or look online and check and see if that's what he's seeing. All right, very good. Uh, Dr. Troy Major uh, had an emergency, well, not an emergency, but had vet work to do, but he's <laughs> joined us now. Uh, good morning, Dr. Major. We had mentioned earlier that it is uh, National or Severe Weather Preparedness Week. If you could remind us of some of the things uh, that you might keep in mind for your pets uh, when you're preparing and dealing with uh, severe weather. 
Hey, glad. Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, the main thing, a lot of things we see with, with pets here in severe weather is, you know, the changes in barometric pressure and uh, thunderstorms, this sort of thing. A lot of pets get some severe anxiety going on. You need to talk to your vet about if they're really bad with this. Uh, talk to your vet about some uh, medication that might help during thunderstorms and this sort of thing. Uh be prepared for anything that happens just like you're prepared for yourself with your pets. Um, I always recommend being able, if you have to evacuate or leave for some reason, make sure you have your carriers, your health records, this sort of thing, and uh, just be prepared. Yeah, I know that uh, if I ever hear the the uh, tornado siren that goes off, I always have the pet carrier ready, so I stick my cat in there because, you know, if, if something were to happen, as, as, as kind of skittish as cats can be, he'd be running all over. So it really makes me uh, feel safe knowing that I've got him there, and if something happens, we both can get out of there in a hurry. So, um, But that's a good point you made about, you know, wanting to keep them as, as calm as possible as well, and, you, and uh, their vet might be able to help that uh, in, in that instance. So it, and, uh, you know, go ahead. Some people, some people uh, swear by the thunder shirts. That's kind of like swaddling. Uh, certainly some animals respond to that. Others could care less. So it would be worth a try if you have an animal that is anxious when thunderstorms and severe weather is coming through. This is Creature Comforts. Time for another break. When we get back, we'll continue talking fish, mussels, and Mississippi waters with Robbie L. Wanger. You can call in with your questions and comments this morning. Reach us at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464. You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Good morning. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest for the hour, Robbie Elwinger from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. The number is 1 877 MPB Ring. It's 1 877 672-7464. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. want to talk to Robbie about some of the field work that he does, but first we do have a pet email for Dr. Major, and it says, uh, My dogs both have been given the flea and tick medicines by mouth. The last dose was about a month ago uh, with Brevecto. They seem to be scratching constantly. I don't bathe often, but when I do, I use an all-natural soap. Anything concerning? Uh, or what can I do to help ease the scratching? Kevin, one of the, one of the things with uh, flea control, of course, I, I'm convinced that Brevecto does work from the standpoint of uh, fleas and ticks. However, it's not the only reason that dogs will scratch. So there may be an allergy, maybe something that they're doing. I'm not sure exactly, but if they don't have any fleas, we really need to consult with your vet. Um, there may be something that can be done to alleviate that problem. Uh, we see seasonal allergies even in the wintertime. Uh, so I would suggest if they continue to do this, uh, need to see your vet. And one thing we've talked about before, but remind us again about uh, bathing a dog. How often do you think that's uh, necessary or uh, allowable? And then what do you use to, to clean him with? Great question. One of the things with bathing is I, I would not bathe the dog over every two weeks. At the same time, uh, a lot of dogs do quite well with being bathed 
every two or three months. Uh, a good brushing and combing works well. Uh, actually, a, a brushing, uh, for especially for short-haired dogs, does real well. Uh, as far as a shampoo to use to clean, just a mild shampoo. There are several on the market uh, that really uh, are soothing. Uh, one of the favorite ones is oatmeal and aloe, and it does give some temporary relief from itching and scratching. Uh, have you ever known anybody to try to give a cat a bath? <laughs> yes, and there are things online you might want to look at about that. There's all kinds of things that can't happen when you're giving a cat a bath. Protective clothing uh, that you might need. <laughs> most, most, most cats uh, do not like water. Some do. We have cats that like to get in the shower with their owner and take a bath. <laughs> uh, my suggestion would be, uh, first of all, if you're going to bathe the cat from its nails, uh, first, <laughs> and secondly, uh, if you're going to do it in the sink, take a uh, towel, put it on the surface of the, the bottom part of the sink, and it gives the cat a little traction rather than trying to uh, get out of the sink, and uh, just be very careful and use. Uh, the other thing that I do when bathing a cat is going on, if you have a double sink, fill up one part with uh, warm water. And don't be running water over the cat. So, okay. All right. Uh, and uh, then you can have the other side where you can rinse the cat off. Yeah, my cat likes to peer in when I'm in the shower to see what's going on, but he does not like, he's one of the ones that doesn't like getting wet, so I don't think I would ever try to uh, give him a bath. But that's uh, the good suggestions there. Uh, we've got a caller on the line, so let's uh, welcome Jerry from Rankin County into our discussion this morning. Jerry, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. I have a question about the cultured pearl industry, if you will, and also a statement that I believe that the Pearl River was named for the freshwater pearls that were found in it early on in uh, European settlement. And also on the cultured pearl industry, is it true that they take the mother of pearl out of our, you know, the native mussel shells, drill perfectly round beads? out of that and implant those in the oysters and thus the cultured pearls and i'll listen to your answer yes yeah, so that's a great question um the pearl river was in fact named after the amount of uh mussels that were coming out of there and our many of our freshwater mussels fall into what's called a pearly mussel so these are the your heavier body mussels heavy shells thick shells um and they were really important for the uh, button industry back in the early 1900s to mid-1900s. Um, once we switched from your pearly buttons to plastic, um, that kind of that industry kind of collapsed. Um, but mussels began being harvested again once they switched to the cultured pearl industry, um, which, like you said, they do punch a hole out of a, of a, out of a mussel shell, um, which they'll punch more. It's more of a, a square, kind of a cube-looking uh, it's called a blank, and they'll shave that down to where it's almost fully round, and then they will put it in um, into a saltwater clam, and uh, from there the clam will actually turn it into a, a pearl, a nice uh, smooth pearl. Um, that industry is not in Mississippi. We currently um, do not allow take um, for any mussel species within the state, but that industry is still going on in um, I think Alabama and Tennessee. So it's up. Saltwater clam, not an oyster. Yes, they're uh, it's a saltwater. Uh, shoot, I can't think. They've, they've got very large uh, saltwater. 
I can't remember. It's not a it's not a clam, um, but it's it's one of the the saltwater mollusks that they put them in. Yep. Okay. I've seen examples of having like uh, small floats out on, in the water with strings or rope hanging down below them, and have these uh, clams or you know whatever clamp to those. It, or is that something different? Or uh, no, I think that's how it's it's run. They usually have large squares where they'll have um, these species, uh, and then. Most bivalves typically will make pearls out of just general sand. Um, it's something that gets in, and it irritates um, the muscle inside the shell, and they'll kind of shift it around and move it around, and their body will actually kind of smooth it down and make it. And once more sand, more sand builds up. That's how you get a, a natural muscle. But this just kind of quickens the process by us kind of inserting material and for the muscle to make. Okay. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Jerry. Good to hear from you this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Today, uh, we're visiting uh, with our guest, Robbie Elwanger. He is the ichthyologist and curator of fishes for the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Robbie, you mentioned that you do some field work. If you would, give us an idea of, of the type of work you do out in the field. I do. Um, first, oysters was the word I was looking for. They're oysters. Um, so for a typical field day, um, we're usually trying to find access to a body of water, and that can be something as simple as hopping in at a bridge crossing um, or as complicated as boating 50 miles to a site. Um, most of the time, we've picked out our sites ahead of time or at least a general idea of where we want to sample based on historical localities of a, a species we're looking for um, or looking just looking for habitat in a general area. Um, and our sites can, uh, once we get to a site, um, we're usually taking location data, water quality data, um, writing down site descriptions, stuff like that. Um, and we'll usually sample about five sites in a day, which can take anywhere from 30 minutes to several hours um, to sample a site, depending on what we're looking for and if it's a, a mussel or a fish. All right. Um, let's, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, mussels, but again, remind us of uh, some of the characteristics of uh, mussels found in Mississippi. Um, so some of the characteristics of mussels found in Mississippi, again, we have 84 species um, of freshwater mussel found within the state. Um, these species, um, many of these species are threatened or endangered and exist in low numbers in Mississippi, um, with some only being represented by a handful of individuals um, that have been found within this century, and others are um, believed to no, be lo- no longer occurring in the state. Um, these are the species we are most concerned with, and that's what my job revolves around, is finding these species and determining what their current status is in the state. Um, these can be hard to target, um, a lot harder than even rare fish. Um, as many miles of river could only have a single individual, and you only detect it if you set your hand down on it. Um, and unlike seining or electrofishing for fish, um, mussels we, we have to dive for, um, or you just have to be underwater for. Um, so it takes a lot longer to sample at any given site. Um, and it, Mussels, um, unlike fish, um, are static, usually within a stretch of river. They don't move up and down the river um, with the habitat. So once they get planted there, they stay there. Um, and most most of these mussels won't move their entire lives from a t- particular spot. Hmm. Um, so you really have to take into account um, what a site looks like year-round rather than just at the time you're sampling there because what might look like good habitat when you're there that day could be dry for most of the year. So it won't have any mussels. Um, uh, freshwater mussels, especially those within the family Unionidae, um, very unique taxa. So they, they reproduce. Um, you have to have, first off, a male upstream of the female that releases the sperm. So if you only have two individuals left and one's a male and a female, but the male is downstream of the female, they're never going to 
never going to reproduce and you're never going to have that that species again, unfortunately. Uh, But the female will take up the male sperm, which is released, um, using her siphon um, to internally fertilize her eggs. And then these mussels have several different strategies um, of dispersal for their larvae, which are called glochidia. Um, All of our species within Mississippi are obligate parasites during the early life stage, meaning they have to have a host, which usually comes in the form of a fish or even some amphibians. Um, And then some, many of our mussels are generalists, meaning they, they don't really care what fish they get on as, as long as they get on a fish. Um, but some of our mussels are specialists, meaning they only have a few fe- species of fish or even a single species of fish that they can use as a host. Um, and these glochidia will attach to the fish and stay on for a couple weeks to a month, um, and then they'll fall off, hopefully over a good habitat, where they won't be blown out or pushed downstream or covered up in silt. Um, so... Life as a mussel is really hard, and reproduction rates are, are pretty low for some of our native mussels, um, which can lead to a lot of ours being endangered or threatened. Also, I guess if you're going to clamp down and stay the rest of your life there, I hope you, you pick out a good neighborhood. Yes. <laughs> and then the other one is the two ships passing in the night if the male and the female aren't. Uh... Yep, yep. <clears throat> we got another caller on the line, so this time we're saying good morning to Dan in Columbus. Good morning, Dan. You're on the air with us. Uh, good morning. Got a question about uh, the... Uh, Asian carps and how widespread they may be in the in the area or the state. Uh, yeah, so they they are um, found. Uh, there's uh, mainly on the Mississippi um, Riverside and our Mississippi River drainage. Some of our larger areas, like the Big Black um, and the Sunflower, you'll find Asian carp. Um, and then, especially on the Main Stem Mississippi River, you'll find um, most of the species. So, Big Head, um, Black, and Silver carp, mainly it's silver carp. Um, and then you can also find them, um, there's, there's a small population um, in the Tennessee River and the Tom Bigby, um, but they're not, as they're, we're, we're still doing some work there. I'm not part of that research, um, but especially the F- Federal Fish and Wildlife Service are doing some surveys there to see what the population's like and where they're moving and stuff like that. Um, but mainly, mainly the Mississippi River drainage is where they're sitting right now. Yeah, are they edible? They are edible. Um, so people are finding new recipes, and I think blackened carp's becoming kind of a, a big deal. So they're, they're starting to be edible. Unfortunately, it seems like, uh, especially where they're very prevalent, prevalent. Um, there's so many of them that even you know using them as a food industry is not too too viable for keeping the population down. They are also looking at using them as fertilizer, I think, and stuff like that. So they're trying to find ways to, to keep those populations down. Okay, great. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for the call, Dan. Um, so tell us, uh, Robbie, about the role of mussels in uh, Mississippi's ecosystem. Yes, so mussels are very important um, for our freshwater ecosystems. Um, they can live anywhere. Some of them um, kind of uh, mature very quickly and live anywhere from 10 to 15 years, while others mature very slowly and can live upwards of 75 years. Um, they feed through a specialized siphon, which they bring in nutrients from the water surrounding them, um, which they then filter and excrete back into the water. Um, so they're capturing a lot of nutrients and keeping it there in the system rather than it being washed out. Um, and that nutrients can actually be, be put back into the system when they die or they're eaten by many of our native wildlife. Um, they're very important to our freshwater systems because they act as a natural, natural biofilter for algae, plankton, bacteria, and suspended particles within our waters so they can clean up our waters. They are also known to filter out um, contaminants like E. coli from our waters. Um, They're important for many of our native species of fish, turtles, birds, and mammals. um, And they're actually 
important to our both our Pearl River and Pascagoula map turtle females that are actually specialized for feeding on these freshwater mussels. Um, so along with being very important to our native species for food and being important for cleaning our waters, these are also, along with our native fish, our um, our what's called a um, indicator species. So many of these species are very sensitive to changes in water quality. Um, they're susceptible to small changes in flow, turbidity, oxygen, and nutrient levels. Um, so looking, finding a healthy population of not just fish, but mussels with high diversity really indicates a well-balanced system with clean water. Um, so once these species begin to disappear, we should really question what changed in the system and what we can do to fix it because clean fresh water is one of our most important resources resources we have on earth um, we're rapidly running out of it and many of our natural systems um, through a multitude of factors having these species as a litmus test for a healthy system can really help us to conserve and preserve these resources for future generations this is creature comfort so time for the last break of that when we get back we've got some interesting named muscles we'll dig into that a little bit uh and dr major still on the line if you have a pet question to join our conversation in the last part of the show call us with uh, at one eight seven seven mpb ring the phone number is one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four you can email animals at mpbonline.org we'll wrap up the show after this Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing a doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest for this hour, Robbie Elwanger. If you want to join the conversation with a question or comment, still a little bit of time to work you in before the show ends. It's one eight seven seven mpb ring one 7464 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. And a quick reminder, if you're ever out and about and you see something that you want to know more about, if you can snap a picture of it on your smartphone and send it to us at that email address, we'll see if we can't find out what it is and get some additional information for you. And also, if you ever miss today's program, you can subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Or if you download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone, you get to listen to all the local MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. So, Robbie, some interesting named muscles. So if you could, maybe we can talk about these. The first one is the mucket. Yeah, so um, we do have a lot of interesting names for um, our species, but the mucket um, is actually a kind of a rare species in Mississippi. Um, they're not federally listed but they are state listed because there's some there's not that many of them um, we actually did find the first mucket on the big black this year when we did our survey um, but that's not one of the most interesting names we've got stuff like uh, the warty back the pimple back uh, the fat mucket um, <laughs> pocketbook sheep's nose um, fluted shell so lot, lots of fun names malacologists back in the day really had fun with their, their common names so who gets to pick names like that? The person that discovers the thing, or is it something that maybe evolves over time? Or um, Sometimes it evolves over time for the common name. Um, it's usually off of a, a local colloquialism. or it, that's The issue with common names is some things can be called four different things, like you've got bluegill, brim, um, they sometimes call them perch, stuff like that, can all refer to the same species, which is why um, most scientists will refer to everything by their scientific name, which doesn't change. So... 
Go I was ahead. just going to say, I think in the old days when there were um, a lot of people that were collecting for the button industry, that's when they got a lot of weird common names by those <laughs> the old fishermen that were collecting them. And they were supposed to sort them, you know, in croaker sacks by um, by type. So they would put together what looked like them and label those bags, and they made up some very colorful names. So do we know where some of these names came from, like sheep nose? I mean, does it somehow look like a sheep's nose? Most, most of them are rem- <laughs> resemble kind of what their common name um, kind of says. Um, one of my favorites is the rabbit's foot, and it does actually look like a rabbit's foot. It's shaped like a rabbit's foot. It looks like it has toes. So. And the washboard. That and the was washboard, one that's worth yes. a lot of money because they're big and the, they look like a washboard. The washboard is our largest native yeah. muscle, and it can get very big. Uh, the fat bucket. We need to be more PC. With maybe we can come up with something that's a little less. You know, the uh, the, the large bucket or the uh, yeah. uh, the pocketbook. It really looks like a yes. full pocketbook. And the, the yeah. snuff box and yeah. the pyramid pig toe. That's another interesting one. Yes, unfortunately, um, we were looking for that this year on the big black. Unfortunately, that seems like it is no longer in the system. Um, we will be doing a more extensive survey there, hopefully finding them. But um, for now. They're not really there anymore. There are there is still a population in the Sunflower River, and they're they're a very cool muscle. They actually do. They're very curled at the top. They look like a pig toe. So when we talk about <clears throat> what's endangering them or what's uh, causing that, is it water quality? Would would that be one of the main things? The the main factor affecting most of our species of mussel is um, sedimentation within our rivers. So not only do we have a lot more turbidity in the rivers, which can silt over these mussels that are. Existing in one spot, living in clay um, or living in sand or a little bit of gravel, um, they can get covered up over time, and a lot of these bigger species of mussels can't get out of that silt and end up dying. Um, but we also have um, eutrophication in some of our systems, where you get um, an over excess of nutrients and algal, bloom, algal blooms, which will deplete the oxygen, um, which can kill our mussels, which do need a lot of oxygen to survive. Um, as well as many of our mussels are just being blown out of these systems as they get eroded. Um, the Big Black River is a great example of that. It has had several head-cutting events, which basically think of it as like a giant bulldozer going straight up the system where all the banks just collapse on themselves, and it's just a, a effect of one bank falling on another bank on another bank all the way up the river, um, which completely changes um, the surface geology of these rivers and changes um, turns them more into a channelized, um, just a channelized, unstable place um, where these mussels really need stable substrate that does not change. So again, many of these mussels live 50 plus years, um, so they, they really need something that's going to be stable for 50 years, um, or they can be washed out or covered up. Um, so the museum is always a great place to learn about Mississippi's natural environment. So if you would tell us why it's uh, what folks can learn about fish in a controlled environment and, and why the museum is a good source for that. Yeah, so the museum's a great source um, for kids and adults alike um, to learn about their native fish, native mussels, native birds. Um, we have many um, still collections where we've got um, – taxidermied animals um, with information so you can learn all, all native species of birds in Mississippi. You can learn all about the native fish in Mississippi. Um, and then again, we do have live specimens of reptiles and um, amphibians and fish where kids can go and observe and you can actually try to learn your native fish and mussels based on live spe- or native fish and, sorry, we don't have any live mussels, um, but native fish and reptiles um, based on live specimens, which makes it a lot more enjoyable and a lot easier. 
And uh, I always like to put a plug in for the nature trails. If anybody that goes to visit the museum, there's some great uh, hiking opportunities out in the back of the museum. And also, I would recommend the current special exhibit that they have at the museum about video games. If you're like me and grew up with video games, you'll enjoy that. I thought it was very well presented and uh, a lot of fun. Uh, and again, so, you know, you might kind of lure maybe your friends and family in there uh, with a promise of a fun exhibit. And then you could also get to ex- uh, sample all the other wonderful stuff uh, that's at the museum throughout the year. Uh, and again, a final reminder, if you ever see something, snap a picture of it with your smartphone and send it to animals at mpbonline.org, and we'll try to tell you what it is that you are seeing. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners. To hear today's show or previous show, you can go to mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Robbie Elwanger, I'm Kevin Farrell. Up next, it's AutoCorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.